Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Well, Father, we ask you tonight in Jesus' name for you to rest on the word and that it would make so much sense tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Revelation, gathering for the final war. This is the sixth bowl of wrath. So we've been going through the seals, trumpets, and bowls. Uh, We took a little kind of detour in there as we did a few chapters, but we've been on the uh, bowls of wrath here. And so uh, we are looking at the sixth bowl tonight. So you could really call this message the sixth bowl if you wanted to. But uh, rather than call it that, I wanted to identify what the sixth bowl is. And the sixth bowl is the gathering of the nations for the final war. So it's not the final war, but it's the gathering of the nations for the final war. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about that gathering, and then we are going to touch on that final war a little bit and just kind of get into some of those details. We'll also uh, review a couple of points from uh, our previous session, because uh, in the session that we did uh, two weeks ago, We were talking about uh, a couple of the dynamics that are happening here in this passage. So let's read it. This is Revelation 16, 12 through 16, top of the page here. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world. Here's our focus point tonight. These three demon spirits go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. They gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Again, we said a couple weeks ago, this is the only place that that term Armageddon is used. So this is, if you ever have heard that term, you maybe have different ideas about it. This is the passage. This is the context. This is what's going on. And whatever ideas you might have from a story you heard or a movie you saw, that's not real unless it told you this story. This is the storyline of Armageddon. Three demon spirits going out to gather the kings and their armies for a final battle uh, outside of Jerusalem. That's what is uh, happening here. All right. Well, just a couple of context points here. We were told in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, the end will come like a flood. This is talking about the great tribulation and the timing of the end. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. This verse, uh, while it's, there's a lot in it in uh, Daniel chapter 9, 26, one thing it's describing is the final battle. It says war is going to continue until there isn't war anymore. When is there not war anymore? This final battle. This final battle is the end of the wars. There will be wars that will continue until the end, and this is the end that it's speaking of. Next, we talked about uh, last uh, session, the great river Euphrates drying up and how that helps uh, get some troops across the, uh, the big old river. We talked about the uh, frogs and their assistance in the gathering. Ultimately, it's the work of both God and Satan. I know that sounds like an odd thing. We're going to look at it a little bit more in this uh, session. But it is ultimately the work of both God and the work of Satan to gather these 
armies to outside of Jerusalem. Now, God's doing it for one reason, and Satan's doing it for a very different reason, but both of them are working to gather the nations to this final battle. This is uh, the reason that this is a judgment. Remember, we're looking at the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls of God's wrath, the 21 major judgments in the book of Revelation. How is this a judgment? Well, this is a judgment because it is to destroy the wicked armies, to destroy the military might, to destroy the strongest strength of the nations and the Antichrist empire. They are being gathered in order to destroy them. That is a great judgment, especially when they're going to walk into this battle with some very wrong ideas about how it's going to go. <coughs> Who shows up for a fight, you know you're going to lose. You don't do that. They think they're going to win. They are being lured into a trap that God is setting for them. Now, they think they're doing it out of their pride and their, their military strength. They're gathering for their reasons, but God is actually the one gathering them for a very different set of reasons. It is a judgment because this final battle will completely destroy the strength of the Antichrist and will actually end up in him being thrown into the lake of fire. All right, Satan's hidden agenda now, just on the, uh, on the very natural war side of things, they're gathering outside of Jerusalem, and the objective from the, uh, the military generals, everybody's being told, and the Antichrist is saying, listen, we're here today, all of our armies, we're here today to tackle, to attack, and to trample down Jerusalem. See that city over there? And they can see it, you know, in the distance. Say, we're here to fight against Jerusalem, to take out Jerusalem, to conquer Jerusalem. Well, it's kind of an interesting scenario because Jerusalem at that point will have a mostly defenseless, some thousands, maybe, you know, tens of thousands of Jewish population that are not really going to be much of an obstacle <laughs> related to the military fight. If the fight is really all of these armies against a few thousand, or whatever the number is, uh, Jews in Jerusalem, as will be a part of the, the narrative, what are we doing in Jerusalem? We're going to go get rid of those bad Jews because there will be no one more anti-Semitic uh, than the Antichrist. There will be nobody who wants to destroy the Jewish people more. They're uh, gathering for battle, but it's a very strange thing. If you're Satan, you don't really need 10 million or a million or whatever the number is, troops, however many millions. It might be more than that. You don't really need that many to attack a mostly defenseless city with people that have already mostly been uh, unarmed. They mostly had their arms taken from them. I don't mean their arms, but their, their weapons. Uh, that would be a weird picture if you got all these people with no arms. Um, they've, they've mostly you know, had their, uh, their armament taken from, stripped from them. If the fight is really against them, then this is kind of like overkill. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing with all these guys to gather against it? Well, what's actually happening is Satan is not actually gathering the armies of the earth to fight against Jerusalem, even though that will be part of what is being said and part of his gathering ploy and all that. Really, he's going there to fight against the lamb and his army. Look at Revelation 19, 13 through 14. You're going to need all the armies of the earth if you're going to fight this battle against this enemy. 
Revelation 19, 13 through 14, middle of page two in the notes. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. You know, you might need a few million troops if that's the guy you're fighting. If the armies of heaven are coming, then you better figure out how to muster all hands on deck from planet earth in order to be able to fight that battle. That's the battle. The battle that we're looking at here is of a very unusual sort. We'll cover more of that later. They actually have this crazy idea. This is so crazy. They actually think they're going to fight against the lamb and win. Like, they actually think it. Look at these verses. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war against the lamb. Lamb, we're mad at you. And all those boys behind you in their shiny clothes, and their white horses, we are mad. And we're making war against you. You don't make war against someone if you are, in your thinking, 100% guaranteed to lose big. You don't go make war. You don't go pick a fight that you know you're going to lose. They think they're going to win. But the lamb will overcome them because he's God. Because he's the Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers. All you who got a little bit of fight in you, I got good news for you. There's a day coming. You're going to get to do all the fighting you want to do. There is a day where you're going to fight, fight alongside Jesus Christ. Until then, don't fight. But then you get to fight. So just save it all up and your day will come. Look at Revelation 19, 19. Then I saw uh, the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. They're gathering to make war against him. This is bizarre. Well, now we've got an interesting detail here because Satan has a hidden agenda. Satan's agenda isn't just to destroy Jesus, isn't just to fight against Jerusalem. Satan, I promise you Satan knows the Bible. I don't like that, but we actually know that he does because he quoted it at Jesus several times. And that's not the only time that he showed understanding of the Bible. Satan knows the Bible probably better than we do. Scary. He's had a long time to look at it. If all he did was read it once through with a bad attitude, once every, you know, hundred years, he's read it more than you. I mean, he just, he's like, he got understanding about the Bible is my point. He knows for sure Revelation 20, 1 through 3, promises he's going to go to prison for a thousand years, and he does not want to go to prison. He will be thrown into the abyss, Revelation 20, 1 through 3, and he'll be locked there for a thousand years. He does not want that. I promise you he knows that Bible verse. He wants to avoid going to prison. A big piece of this fight is self-preservation. He is selfish. He doesn't want to go to prison. He has got a thought process. Well, He's trying to trap Jesus in some words. You just, I love it when people try to trap Jesus in his words. It's kind of my favorite because it will so backfire in the craziest way possible 10 times out of 10. The Pharisees tried it and we got the greatest commandment out of the deal. You know what I mean? It's like, this is just awesome. So he, Satan is trying to trap Jesus in words Jesus said, because here's the problem. If Jesus said it, it has to happen, or Jesus is a liar, and everything we know about the character of God is wrong. You see? 
So if Jesus doesn't do something Jesus says he's going to do, we have a giant theological problem. Great news. Jesus will always do what Jesus says he's going to do. That is one lesson Satan has not gotten through his thick head, is that Jesus is going to make good on whatever Jesus says. But let me tell you one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew 23, 39, top of page three. Jesus said these words as he's uh, about to be crucified. This is going to be the last public appearance that he has as a free man. He says, for I tell you, you will not see me again. He's talking to the leadership of of the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish leadership. He says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until you recognize me as Messiah, until you acknowledge that I, Jesus, am God, I am God's servant, the one you're about to crucify, the one that you hate, the one that you are so convinced is from the devil, you won't see me again until you say with your mouth, that's God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's the Messiah. He said, you won't see me again. Do you notice Jesus hasn't come back yet? Israel has not yet said, blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. They haven't said it to him yet. And until they do, there's a real issue with Jesus taking leadership of the earth and showing up in Jerusalem. There's a real issue because he said it wouldn't happen. Well, Lucifer is looking very much to take advantage of that because let me tell you, I think one of the things that's in his mind, I think that the reason the Holocaust happened, I think the reason that anti-Semitism is such a thing in the earth, why hate Jewish people? Like that doesn't even make sense. Why? Like, why, why want to wipe them out? Why want to be mad? I, I don't mean, like, to me, it makes sense to look at a different people group as a secular thought process, a different people group, and go, yeah, we don't really get them. I, that doesn't make sense to me. Their practices, their thought processes. I get that. What I don't understand is, why so mad? <laughs> like, why, why, why did it escalate from you're a little weird, we don't get you, to we hate you, we're going to eradicate you from the earth? Where did that come from? It is the rage of Satan. Why? Well, part of the thought process, I'm thinking that Satan is thinking this. If I can get rid of the Jews, and there aren't Jews anymore, then there's no Jews to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and Jesus can't come back and throw me in prison. I mean, if there's no juice to say it, then it, Jesus can't fulfill it. It's a bizarre thought process, but I just, there is such a rage to exterminate the Jewish people. It's, it's crazy. These are horrible ideas, and they are very much on the mind of Satan. And they are very much in the end time agenda, that, that aggressive agenda. He won't be successful, but he sure will try. He wants to prevent the event of the Jews, the Jewish leadership saying, we need you, we missed it, you really are the Messiah. Like the one in the, in, in the Old Testament, you're, you're the one in the Torah that we've been looking for. You're the greater Moses, you're the one, you are the guy in the Psalms that was prophesied, you, the son of man, you're the son of God, you're, you're God, you're blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will say it. All right, part three, unique dynamics about this battle. There are some strange things that are going to happen with this battle. This battle will be unlike every battle altogether in human history. Any battle, pick a battle, even in your sci-fi movies. This is the craziest battle 
ever for a number of reasons. One, God and Satan together are gathering these nations for battle. I gave you a bunch of verses there. Top of page four. God's bringing them to enact judgment on them. Satan is gathering them to destroy Jerusalem, the Jews, and Jesus. But both are gathering them for different purposes. Bunch of Bible verses there. You can go look at them when you want to. What else is really strange about this battle? This is the bizarrest thing. It will have the attendance of all the armies of every nation. All the armies of every nation. That's crazy. That's never happened. What that? All the armies? <laughs> We're talking about 100%. This is unprecedented. There's, ne there's never been... I don't even think we've had an Olympics where all the nations were represented in the Olympics. And it's like, and that's a happy thing that everybody's trying to get behind around the world. This is, how are you going to get all the armies from every nation all there? That's a crazy idea. Wow. How about this though? Not just that they came, they're all gathered to the same place at the same time. Just think about that dynamic that they're all... They're all together at the same time. I mean, man, airlines are really going to have some booked flights there for a couple of days. All the nation's armies have gathered to the same place at the same time. There's just never been anything like this. The kings of all the nations are present at the battle. Now that's peculiar in modern warfare. It might have been back in medieval times that the king of the castle would ride out with the troops and he'd be at the front, you know, King Arthur kind of a concept. That's not how it's done right now. When there's a war, the president or the king sits way back at a safe distance in the easy chair and pushes the buttons and makes the phone calls and says, yeah, go get them, blow them up, do the thing. They don't go to war. They're going to go to war. All the kings, all of the kings will be present for this battle. Whoa. All the kings, the primary leadership of every nation will be there in attendance for this battle. That's different. <laughs> will they be wearing like, you know, blue t-shirts? How will we know who's who? They're all going to be there. The kings are going to be at the final battle. That is a crazy thought process. Right in the middle of it. I think part of that is a show of allegiance required by the Antichrist. Hey, it's not enough that your guys go and die tomorrow or they go and fight. I want you there, king, leader, president. I want you there. And they'll be there. All right, top of page five. All the nations are gathered on the same team. <laughs> now, that might sound redundant, but I just want you to think about the whole concept of war, the whole concept of fighting. Okay, imagine the MMA match, all right? And it's, it's the guy that everybody knows, like, you know, the one, you know, really hard fighter, and it's like, and who's he fighting? Nobody. The biggest match of the year is this guy in a ring all by himself. This is a really odd idea, because in order to have a fight, you have to have a foe. But all the nations, all of them, there's never been a war against non-humans. Like, 
The only way to have a war is this nation fights against that nation, or in the case of World War I or World War II or some other conflicts, a few nations together against a few nations. What about when all, all the nations are all on the same team? Uh, we're all here. Who are we fighting? Oh, that's a surprise. <laughs> I didn't tell you that? Yeah, the lamb. Well, okay. Where's the lamb get his army from? Oh, heaven. No big deal. It's just don't ask questions. Huh. So all the nation's armies are all together on the same team. Whose team are you? You know, one, two, one, two. Number off. One, two. No, no. One, 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 one. They're all on the same team. And they're gathered to fight against a foe that isn't human. <laughs> They've got resurrected bodies. They're supernatural. This is a very different fight. They're all gathered on the same team. Such a huge army gathered against such a defenseless city. All right, well, the battle's over in a moment. This is going to be, I mean, the most upside down... It, when you think about the idea, let's, let's go with like right now, okay? Let's think about a nation, and let's say that nation had the strongest military might, you know, in the world, in human history. And you were able, through, you know, connecting with other nations or whatever, you're on the other side, you were able to gather 10 times as many troops with three times the, the military technology and three times the tactical advantage and three times of this. But you were able to gather 10 times as many armies, uh, as many uh, warriors. You would look at that and go, for sure, the guy with all the military tech and the, the bigger numbers, and stuff, for sure he's going to win. This is going to be the most bizarre fight ever because you're talking about millions arrayed in armament the armies of the earth and their weapons are there to fight and it just it looks so one-sided like for sure that team is going to win not only do they not win the battle is over in like a minute it's like effortless they don't even put up a fight there will be zero casualties on jesus's side that is like the worst odds ever that's the football game where you go in and it's like 98 to zero at the end, okay? This is really, really bad math for the Antichrist and his team. All the kings are gathered outside of Jerusalem. Top of page six, Joel three, one through two. In those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel. Oh, this is God saying, I am going to deal with them. I'm going to gather them to battle. They think they're gathering to battle. It's not to battle. It's to trial. I am gathering them to a tribunal. They are walking into a trap. I'm going to deal with them because of their previous grievances. It's very unusual details about the storyline, though, because in the midst of this battle that's going to unfold, strange supernatural things start happening during the actual fight. 
strange things that you really don't want to have happening ever, but for sure when you're in a battle trying to win. Because war is already intense. You don't even want it to rain in war. This gets way out of hand. It's way more than rain. While the battle is happening, look what God does. The seventh bowl. We'll touch more on this in another session. I just want you to understand the overlap of the battle that's about to happen. Remember, Revelation uh, uh, chapter 16 related to the sixth bowl. The sixth bowl isn't Armageddon. It's the gathering for Armageddon. It's the gathering of everybody. The battle of Armageddon will happen after the gathering. Okay, The battle will happen after the gathering. It will happen during the seventh bowl. Well, what happens during the seventh bowl? Seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple, a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. It's the judgment that was prophesied out of Joel chapter three a minute ago. I will gather them. I will judge them for what they've done. It's done on you, done for you. It is done, and there came a severe earthquake. Last thing you want when you are charging into battle is find yourself in an earthquake falling down. There is a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred, ever. It's the worst earthquake ever. While you've got all your armies, you've got all these millions of guys, you're trying, you've got the tactical advantage. No, you don't. I snow globed you. Giant earthquake on your army. Nothing like it's ever happened. The great city, that's Jerusalem, it's split into three parts. And huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on dirt. No, it didn't fall on dirt. The word says fell on people, guided missiles that are a hundred pound hailstones. I got you. You run that rock fell on people hailstones a hundred what is a hundred pound hailstone i tried to do the math to try to figure out you know how big i was like okay if a bowling ball eight pounds and it's this big how how big is a hundred pound you know i don't know because you got volume there's all these details you got density it ain't small it ain't pea-sized and whatever it is it's a hundred pounds falling out of the sky like a guided missile while you've got your army, Mr. Antichrist, trying to march in, but they're all discombobulated because of a giant earthquake, and they've got hailstones pounding them. This is the most one-sided fight ever. He's like, oh, oh you, got, you got a few million guys. Okay, that's good. Good for you. I got hailstones. I've been saving them for you, bro. Well, check this out. It's not even the first time God did this. Look at the precedent that we have in Joshua 10, verse 11 as they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Haran to Ascalah. The Lord hurled large hailstones. The Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. And more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Oh my gosh, you did a dry run on this? You like tested this arsenal out? He's like, oh yeah, I figured out how to get it right through the tank. Like, <laughs> this is not an issue for me. I got these 100-pound hailstones. I got this. That's crazy. Well, 
Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. I don't know if you knew that or not, but when Jesus comes back, it's not arbitrary. It is to Jerusalem. He's coming to the fight. Remember, Satan is gathering the armies. The Father is gathering the nations out there outside of Jerusalem so that there can be a final showdown. Jesus comes in from the back door entrance. When the Lord returns to Zion, uh, Isaiah 52 here, bottom of page 6, they will see it with their own eyes. This is talking about the, uh, the Jews. They're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to see it. They're all nice. They're going, oh my gosh. And they're going to be shaking in their boots. Can you just imagine being a Jew in Jerusalem? You're pretty well defenseless. No matter what you've got, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter. You've got, you know, millions of guys out there that are all bloodlust all at this moment. They're, they are angry and crazy, and they're coming in. These Israelites are freaked out of their mind. They are very much looking for the God of Israel to come and bail them out. You will see it with your eyes, he says. You'll burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. All right, well, what do they do? The Jews are like, um, hey, we're really glad you're here, but we really don't want to be around for this. <laughs> like, this is a really intense fight about to happen. All those guys with you, they're glowing. And that's weird. We're not used to glowing guys coming and visiting our city on horses. And Jesus, you're the man, but we're still not real sure how we feel about this fight. Look what it says that Jesus is going to do. Zechariah 14, 4 through 5. On that day, Jesus, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split into two from east to west. Imagine a mountain. Imagine your God, stick your fingers in the sand, and divide. You've now got this mountain that went two ways, and you created a valley between them. This is really going to happen. Literally going to happen. It says this. Forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. And then you Jews in Jerusalem that are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You Jews that have been like shaking in your boots and trying to get out of Jerusalem, trying to figure out what you're going to do and don't know what to do with Jesus. You will flee by my mountain valley. For it will extend a zeal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake. And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. The great procession of the saints will now enter through that same valley. The Jews are running out. The resurrected army is coming in. And they will then come out through Jerusalem, that front gate. And my, oh my, will the opposing army get the shock of their life. But that's not all. This fight will be so one-sided. It is the most like disappointing moment in Satan's life. It's like, you are about to have a really bad day, bro. It's going to go south for you. Because if all of that wasn't enough, he's, Jesus is going to release the chaos judgment. The chaos plague is like the boss of all plagues in the Bible. 
It shows up about four or five times. And here we see in Zechariah 14, 14, a prophecy about the end of the age. Zechariah 14, 14 is a prophecy about this, pass, about this time frame, about the return of Jesus, the fight at the battle of Armageddon and Jerusalem, all that. It's a prophecy about that. And look what it says on that day. Men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of another and they will attack each other. Oh no. Any of your guys that were still able to stay on their feet after the earthquake and the wibbly wobbly, any of the guys that didn't get hit in the head with a giant hailstone, any of the guys that kept marching forward, they're actually going to look at each other and go, I'm mad at you. You stole my donut last week and stab them. They're going to turn against each other. It's, it's not going to be random. It's not going to be a few guys. It says the Lord will strike them with panic. They will be, they're, oh, they're freaking out. They're struck with panic. And it says each one will grab the hand of another and strike them with their weapon. Oh my gosh. It's so one-sided. The Antichrist isn't going to get anywhere. <laughs> this is going to be, this was just, it's a trap. It's, you set a giant trap for the biggest amassing of an army in human history so that you could deal with all the armies in a second so that the rest of the human race would go, well, if he just did that to our armies, <laughs> what is he going to do to us? What hope do we have left? Exactly. That's the deal. And then an imperishable army from heaven comes out of the gates of Jerusalem and comes and takes care of the rest of the mess, even while these guys are getting struck with panic, striking each other down, getting hit with hailstones. You just imagine being on one of those white horses and 100-pound hailstones just moving right around you in order to hit the dude next to you. This is the craziest fight ever. And it's in your Bible. Okay, let's have some riveting conversation. All right, we're going to do our uh, time of group questions. And uh, as always, I'll repeat them uh, so that the, uh, those that are joining us online or those that will hear the message later can uh, hear the question as well. Uh, but before we do, is this not the coolest story ever? I mean, I, just as a, like, I mean, for real, if, if you haven't studied the end times before, doesn't this just make you kind of want to a little? Like, you want to, like, understand this. And, like, this crazy stuff's in the Bible. This is just crazy. It's just crazy. Um, okay, uh, Andy, we'll start with you. So where's Psalm 149 in the midst of the scenario we just described? Yeah, so uh, uh, it would be good for you to know uh, Psalm 149. So if you can, uh, you can go there in your Bible or I'll just read it. Uh, Psalm 149 is a very, I mean, you, it just stares at you and it says what it says, and it just can't possibly be that it says what it says, but it says what it says, so it means it. Okay, Psalm 149 says this, let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out 
the sentence written against them, this is the glory of all the saints. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the glory of the saints is to participate in the battle of Armageddon with a sword for sorting while singing worship songs on a white horse. This is like, this is intense. Friends, those armies that are coming behind Jesus, it says armies, multiple. One of those armies is the army of the resurrected. And we're going to be with them. And it says we're going to have swords in our hands to inflict punishment, the judgment. How did it say? To carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints throughout human history. All the saints. This is the glory of all his... This is crazy. So where does this fall? Well, it's a good thing the Antichrist starts off with so many millions of guys. Because there are going to be a lot of ways they're dying. Gals too, probably. There's a lot of ways that they're dying. Lots and lots of ways. So if there's even going to be any of them left for us to get in there on our white horse with our sword and start doing some damage, there's going to have to have been a lot to start with. So it's actually like really good that there's tens of millions or however many of them are gathered. The reason I keep throwing around the millions and don't really know, it says the armies, not 100% of the human population. So it's not all of the humans on the earth gather for battle of Jerusalem. It's all of the armies of the nation. So now they've been beefing up their armies. They've been getting ready for this moment, but it's still not anywhere near 100% of the population. So it's millions, but remember, there's been a lot of people beat up throughout the Great Tribulation. So it's, it's like tens of millions. I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot of guys. So in the midst of the chaos judgment, in the midst of the arsenal of heaven, you know, guided missile hailstones and the, the earthquake and, and all the stuff, in the midst of all that, the saints are going to be tearing through with, with those swords and going just berserk on these guys. It's your glory. Quote the Bible. The glory of all his saints The glory, it's the glory to inflict the sentence that has been given by Jesus against these armies. So the battle, you definitely want to be picturing the saints on, you know, mounted on horsebacks, riding through this chaotic field. The Valley of Megiddo is a really big plain. It's a good thing too, because it's it's the staging ground for all these guys. It's it's gonna be intense. So, okay, next question over here, John. That's great, great question. How are the armies all going to fit in the Valley of Megiddo? So uh, I would encourage you, if you haven't uh, seen it already, I would encourage you to Google, um, I think it's called Called to Populate Heaven. It's a Reinhard Bonnke uh, crusade um, video thing. I'm pretty sure you can find it on YouTube, Called to Populate Heaven. And in it, this is before uh, Bonnke passed, he describes and, and shows the footage of the time they had one million in attendance for one of their crusades. A million. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's so intense. But it doesn't go on for 20 miles. I mean, it's, it's a very defined area. 
Now, these guys are going to have to be compacted. So how are they all going to fit? I mean, they're going to be in there like sardines. But it's not that it's impossible. One of the... Uh, the wildest pieces of the, uh, of the Great Tribulation is uh, the verse that talks about after Jesus comes in and all the, the slain are dead, it says there's going to be blood up to the horse's bridle. That's, the, that's, that's up to about here. It's about this high. And it says it's going to be that way for 144 miles. I forget the the uh, the the length uh, of it, but it's it's like miles and miles and miles of blood that's like five feet tall, and it, it's like whoa! There were so many guys. Well, part of the reason for that is they're all compacted. So a big piece of the answer to the question is they're compacted. I mean, it's not it's not like one guy over here and then five feet over there, or you know, or five you know yards over there is another guy. They're all like together in this and they're all going to be dying together in this it's going to be wild so it's going to be like sardines you kind of want to imagine that and overflowing from every direction and maybe even it doesn't say this but to be bather, battle uh to be gathered for the final battle in the plain of megiddo it's possible it doesn't say this it's possible that you've got reserve troops that are trying to get in, but they don't have room to get in yet until a few of the guys there die. You know, that they're backed up, just like right outside, trying to get into that valley, trying to get into that area. What we do know is that all the nations will be gathered there. We know that all of them are going to die there. Uh, and it'll be like sardines because the reason I'm saying it that way is because you can't get that volume of blood without that level of concentrated human. I mean, there's only so, uh, only so many, you know... Uh, uh, whatever leaders of blood in a person, and it's like for you to get that love, that amount of blood, that high for that far in that valley, uh, it's going to take a lot of people. Great question. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, it says that uh, Jesus pulls a sword out of his mouth. How literal is that? I'm taking it literally until I see him do something sneaky. Uh, I don't see any reason why it can't be. Um, and we're looking at a passage that's it says horse and it means horse. It says army and it means army. It says all this stuff and it means what it says, but oh, but I snuck in this symbol. Uh, the, he pulls a sword out of his mouth and it doesn't mean a sword even though it does mean a sword in Psalm 149 when you're talking about the saints. So the saints have swords, but Jesus doesn't have a sword. He has a, you know, Jesus words. I, I think it's a sword. So I, I don't have any reason to take it not literally. And if I'm wrong, well, okay, I guess we'll find out. You know, when we're there, it's like, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Is it it's on his side? Is, it, is he, he going to pull out words? Is it, uh, I think he's going to pull out a sword. And so, you know, there's, there are far stranger things happening in this scenario than Jesus pulling a sword out of his mouth. It's like, listen, I got, I'd love to have a good little debrief meeting with you later about how long has that been in there? What's, what's it made out of? Uh, what, has it been growing? Like, is, did it start off as the word of God and then grow into a sword? Like what happened with that sword? But in the meantime, uh, it just says he pulls a sword out of his mouth. And so I'm inclined to believe it's a sword and you just got, you got a hundred reasons to believe it's a sword. And in my opinion, you've got one strong reason to not believe it's a sword, and that is, how can it be a sword? But that, to me, doesn't hold up. So I'm like, it's a sword. So, um, 
Great question. Yeah, how big, how long, I don't know. Does it go down tickle his toes? And it was like, ah, it's like a big one, seven feet tall. It wrapped around. I don't know. It just, we are, I can't wait to see that thing. I really, that's going to be an awesome sword. And you know it's going to be like part of the artifacts of heaven forever. Like, what's that? Oh, friend, you weren't here for that, were you? Oh, so yeah, you got, you got born in the millennium, you know, 100 years in. Let me tell you about that sword. He pulled it out of his mouth. It was awesome. Okay, Luke. So uh, many times as we look at Jesus in the uh, procession and pictures of his coming, it's the brightness of the heavens. It's the brightness of the sun. It's, it's bright, bright, bright. The question is, so Jesus is marching into this battle. What level of that brightness is he operating in? Well, I don't know, but I can tell you a couple things that we do know. One, he releases panic on the armies. It's very possible that that panic is even connected to the blinding light of his coming. That's one, one idea. Another idea, Jesus, in order to make it all the more terrifying so that they can see, dials down the dimmer switch on the brightness for that very purpose so that people can see. Because it... This, this judgment, they're supposed to feel it, see it, get it. It's not supposed to be, I'm dead. You know, I mean, it's, they're supposed to like die bad, die hard. You know, it's a judgment against them. And so any level of escape from that, I think actually is counter to the purpose of the judgment. And so I think them just to see a blinding light and then just, you know, ah, I'm dead. I think, I think there's going to be... Whatever level of visual terrified aspect uh, will still be fully employed uh, in this uh, battle. And so I think the brightness of his coming, we, we see often that Jesus is able to you know, dim or brighten uh, that countenance, and, and even in a resurrected body. And so it's like, I think that uh, what we're going to see in, in this battle is I think that brightness will absolutely play a role. I just don't think that brightness will steal away the capacity for those that are being struck by him to be able to see him and see that they're being struck by him. Uh, so, you know, that brightness, uh, when it talks about the brightness of the Lord, it's really interesting because the source is God himself. And while it's bright, it's not bright in the sense of a light that's blinding that you can't see anything. It's like, it's a, it's a holy light that still permits your faculties to operate. And so, uh, so it operates differently than straight up the sun. Andy, uh, you got a verse, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, 200 miles is the, the distance. I looked up the, uh, the length of Megiddo or that valley. 236. Miles. There we have it, friends. I mean, does God know what he's doing in this math? It's intense. It's awesome. Yeah, so the, uh, the insight was Andy was reading the verse that I, I alluded to but didn't quote the, the actual verse. It was uh, Revelation 14, verse 20, that talks about this battle and the, uh, the, the volume of blood filling the valley of Megiddo for 200 miles. And Andy found that that valley, at least at some way to measure it, is 236 miles. So pretty awesome. Okay, guys, listen, we're getting this. I mean, we're understanding the book of Revelation and the end time storyline that we are part of. Remember, this storyline is the glory of all the saints. This is part of your story. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.